this, your brain might turn to putty. But there's still a chance to learn. We'll be your study buddies. We're going to talk about some stuff and make research cool. What's up, guys? My name is Taylor Collins. And I'm Paola Sanchez Abreu, and this is Study Buddies, a podcast where we bring you new developments in science and psychology. And sometimes some other stuff. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. It is, in fact, the morning. Uh, so this is a, an adjustment for Paola and I. We are usually <laughs> nice, like, late afternoon podcasters, and we are up bright and shiny. It's real early. Um... I woke up and I was like, I don't know if I can do this. I had the same thought and I went, we're going to do it. We're doing it. Took a cold shower, set up the studio, boom, boom. I immediately went to caffeine. Um, That's smart. I I don't usually have caffeine in the morning, but I was like, if I have to be eloquent, I'm going to need some sort of like energizing thing to to make myself brighten up. She's got to have her hit. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I on the other hand, I on the other hand, <laughs> had a handful of blueberries and drank a glass of cold water. Took a cold shower, and here I am. So, good stuff. I support it. Yeah. How are you doing? Um, this general week. Um, yeah. You know, this has been for me personally a tough week. You know, when you have those weeks where you're just like. There's one thing after another that comes mm-hmm. up and it's kind of building and, mm-hmm. and you end up just kind of like anxious and you're not sleeping right. You're not eating right. Girl, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's, been, that's been my week this week. It hasn't been great. And it's not to say there hasn't been like morning like, or moments of just like peace or loveliness within that. Um, but I think it's been a pretty anxious week. So I've found myself... Um, feverishly adopting a new workout routine <laughs> just as a, a way to compensate oh. for my anxiety. So that's been my week this week. Yeah, I really I really identify with that. Just like constant, constant movement to ignore from all, all of the exhaustion and um, overwhelming emotion. <laughs> right, to cope when you're yeah. just like, okay, my mind's racing. I need to do something else. Yeah. Um, it's been effective. I made it through the week, so I will consider it like a, a check mark on, on this week. Nice. You, she's going to be so fit at the end of all of this anxiety. She, right. It has to counteract the anxiety pizza and chocolate that also occurred. Oh, no. So. <laughs> Between the two of those. Things. Oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, well, this week I got some bittersweet news um which you'll relate to actually so um taylor and i went to high school half day in new haven and um, we went to an art school there and in new haven there was this woman that would walk the downtown area um she went by the name of the shakespeare lady Oh my gosh, I remember her. She was so sweet. Yeah, the Shakespeare lady was this incredible woman that, like, she would, like, if you were passing on the street, she would stop you and she would say, hey, can I perform Shakespeare for you? And you would then be like, um, okay. And she would always say, like, oh, like, you know, like if you if you want to spare a dollar, like that would be great. If not, it's totally fine. I just want to perform for you. 
And then she would proceed to perform Shakespeare with just like absolutely impeccably, just an incredible performance. And this woman, her name was Margaret Holloway. Um, but she, everybody knew her by the Shakespeare lady. She was legendary in New Haven for like 30 years doing this. Um, and she like generations of like families, like parents knew her and then like their kids would know who she was. Um, she was incredibly impactful in the downtown New Haven area. And, um, she went to like, like Yale school of drama in the years of like Meryl Streep and Sigourney Weaver, like this woman was amazing and she was very clear about expressing the fact that she had um a lot of um mental health issues and she struggled with schizophrenia and she was homeless and she um she shared stories of like drug addiction and overcoming her um yeah overcoming all of that trauma and um then she would just perform on the streets of New Haven for like random passerbys. And she passed away this week. So that's such a loss to the community. She was. Yeah. So I remember having like just really interesting conversations with her, like right outside of coffee. Yeah. Like on, you'd be on the way to, to gourmet heaven to get a snack and yeah. um, just end, end up kind of falling into like a little conversation with her. Mm-hmm. Um, she always, she always like brightened your day and just had like a very fascinating narrative to share yeah whether her own or Shakespeare's yeah and it was just it's amazing to me how like you know she and she said it herself like a lot of her career was impeded by her mental health issues and just frankly like all of the adversity she faced as like um a woman of color that had mental health issues in the theater like that's so many things um, to deal with and she still that still didn't stop her from performing for people which I think is like so beautiful and the fact that she I don't even maybe she did know but like she truly truly affected so many people's lives that like this is a loss for the community like actively which I don't know like there's something really beautiful about somebody that didn't necessarily have a home that didn't necessarily have like um, family that they were with all the time but like the community knew her and like her death w- is not going unnoticed like it's just yeah it's a really beautiful thing so it was bittersweet um to learn that but it it just made me like it warmed my heart to see all of these like posts on Facebook and like some really just beautiful um like Facebook eulogies about her it was really May she rest, the Shakespeare lady. It was beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. Wishing her a nice, long, and peaceful slumber. Yeah. So, with that, we wanted to try a new segment this week. I'm very excited about it. Do you want to um, Do you want to tell us what the name is? Yeah, so Paula has been very excited about this new segment. It's called Animal House, and she is going to share about a crazy animal or animal fact that she has learned this week. Okay, um, so I'm just going to jump right in and say that um, this week, the animal of Animal House is called the Sarcastic Fringe Head. Just take a moment. You can process that. I'm sorry. That's the title of the animal? Like, that is the like given name for this animal? <laughs> that is the given name. It is called a Sarcastic Fringe Head, and it is a saltwater fish. 
And I'm I'm pretty sure that was my nickname in college. Like I'm <laughs> like almost a hundred percent sure this is bringing back like flashbacks. Um, I don't know why it's called that, but I think it's absolutely hilarious. Um, so this is a fish, but it kind of looks like a dragon, and they fight using their mouths. I and I I highly encourage every single person to go and just look this up after this episode is over. But they when it opens its mouth to fight the inside of his mouth expands to what looks like rainbow colored wings with fangs it's like the only way i can describe it (laughs) and this is absolutely hilarious (laughs) but so when two sarcastic fringe heads have like two male sarcastic fringe heads have a territorial battle because they're incredibly territorial fish they will wrestle by pressing their mouths against each other as if they were kissing and it, the way like the reason they do that is because they're determining which fish's mouth is biggest mm-hmm. which will determine the larger fish which will establish dominance sarcastic fringe head so this is a sarcastic fringe head fish who wins by being a big mouth <laughs> never have i felt more related to by a fish in my life. <laughs> yep. So that's Animal House this week. You are so very welcome. And I'm so excited for all of you to go look up this animal. So shall we move on um, to our study for the week? Yes, absolutely. So speaking of the Shakespeare lady, Paula had brought us this really interesting study called the neuroscience of romeo and juliet an fmri study of acting paula would you describe to us a little bit about what this study was about so um this was a study done at the at mcmaster university in ontario in 2019 so it's pretty recent um the department of psychology neuroscience and behavior um, conducted and published this study it was a functional mri study and they were trying to identify the brain regions that were activated when actors use what they call a fictional first-person perspective, which is just a character perspective during role-playing. So they were testing to see um, what it is like when an actor responds as if they are the character. Okay, um, this so is one of the first-person so- is like if I'm like pretending that I am someone and acting as if I am and kind of thinking as if I am them. Yeah, you're embodying a character fully just as if somebody, it was like, it it would be as if somebody um, were to be interviewing um, a character on stage, like during a performance. Um, Yeah, so this was the first study of its kind. Um, There hasn't really been many MRI studies on actors. Um, Wow. Which is crazy to me because it is a very interesting phenomenon. As somebody that is an actor, I have I don't understand what is happening to my brain when I'm in character, because um, it's such a transformational thing. And like I'm sure you can attest to that as well. Like it's incredibly transformational to be depicting somebody else. So absolutely, um, it was really interesting. So how did they conduct this study? So what they did was they took. Um, these university-trained actors, and they had them respond to a series of hypothetical questions, such as, 
Um, would you go to a party that you were not invited to? Would you tell your parents if you fell in love? And so they asked these questions to um, these people so three th- different times. Okay. So these are very, di- like, questions that you'd really have to, like, think, like, oh, what type of person am I to respond to these? Like, you'd really have to have an understanding of the character or an understanding of yourself to answer them. Precisely. Yeah. Okay. So they are all very personally addressed questions that you could answer from an incredibly personal perspective. Mm-hmm. So the three perspectives that they had people answering from was first person perspective, which is like literally just myself responding as oneself. Um, third person perspective, which is talking about a friend. So like if I was talking about Taylor and they asked me a question, like, would you ever go uh, would she ever go to a party that she wasn't invited to? And I would say, oh, Taylor would never go to a party that Except she wasn't for invited to. you would say that Taylor would go because she would just feel welcome and Taylor does yeah. do that sometimes. Yeah, Taylor, t- Taylor would go. <laughs> so that was Taylor talking sort of in a third-person perspective about herself. <laughs> I would ask someone to ask for me if I felt uncomfortable about it, probably, but I would go, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So first-person perspective, third-person perspective, and then the last one was a fictional first-person perspective where the character would be an actor, and then they would they, – the character – sorry. <laughs> mm-hmm. Fictional first-person perspective where the actor would be in character and speaking as if they were Romeo and Juliet. So they had those three perspectives, and then they also had a portion of the study where they asked the actors to speak from a first-person perspective – but with an adopted British dialect, um, which you'll see how that comes in later. But it's very interesting. This, that part of the study from what I reviewed was the most interesting to me um, and entertaining. <laughs> and just the idea of um, people being like, oh, well, yes, I would go to a party <laughs> if I was if I wasn't invited. <laughs> exactly. I think science is really, really cool. And when you add someone getting an fMRI where they're just talking in a British dialect, that's <laughs> phenomenal. Like that is exactly where I, I, that's the science that I would like to be a part of. Yes. Oh, that's so funny. Um, I wonder if the scientists were just like sitting there, like just giggling to this. <laughs> right. Like right now we do have access to these like very well-trained actors. What can we make them do? Definitely <laughs> British accents. We need to find a way to make that scientifically relevant. Let's work it in. Oh, so funny. Um, so, <laughs> so back to the study. They um, focused on a group of actors that all had the same approach towards getting into character. So mm-hmm. um, there's so many different methods that actors study to uh, develop a character and become it. And these particular actors that they drew from use the what they call Stanislavski approach to character, which um, I can in layman terms just say it's sort of an inside out approach so it's you study the background of the character you come up with um like their backstory their life story what they want what they need what they are trying to do with their life and then you kind of internalize all of those deep heavy things that you've investigated um so So then you can portray them accurately is the inside out approach like like empathizing to the point where you are you are embodying that character you're feeling with that character you are experiencing that character as if you experienced everything the character experienced exactly yeah it's doing all of that study and that background work of the character's life and a lot of it is imaginative mm-hmm. to then be able to as you said embody the character fully. wow that sounds emotionally heavy 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It's a lot of work. <laughs> Actors should get paid more. <laughs> um, yeah. But... So that was the approach that they made sure that all of these actors were coming towards because they didn't know if the, they didn't want like the approaches to be a confounding factor in the study. So what did they find? Um, so they found that compared to responding as oneself in first person, and I'm coming at you, responding in character produced, quote, global reductions in brain activity and particularly deactivations in the cortical midline network of the frontal lobe, including the dorsomedial and ventromedial prefrontal cortices. Wow. Uh, Pella, you just said a lot of words. <laughs> sure would did. You, would you explain what, what the heck all those things are? Yep, I'm going to. <laughs> you got it. Um, I had to look these big words up as well. I love the brain, but I don't know a lot about it. So Yeah, dorsomedial prefrontal cortex. What what is that? The dorsomedial prefrontal cortex. So um it's been identified to um play roles in processing a sense of self, integrating social impressions, um morality, empathy, decision making, altruism. Um, information processing in fear and anxiety, among many different things. The exact function um, hasn't been very easy to distinguish because it's tied to so many different things. Wow. Um, So it seems like a lot of like higher functioning, um, more complex decision making. um, Yeah. Things like that are coming from this area. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And then um, the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, which is the other um, part of the brain that's deactivated during the acting process, um, it was connected to processing risk and fear. And it also plays a role in the inhibition of emotional responses um, and in decision making. So again, it it's sort of tied to like the findings that they had about the dorsal medial prefrontal cortex and what that those those two those two cortices work in context with each other it seems um, right. and in neuroscience they're always trying to isolate parts of the brain and figure out exactly what they do but it is quite difficult um, right and it so takes you're a saying long time to prove it inhibited the function the well it inhibited the activity in both of these areas which we would think maybe then these areas aren't working as much when when these are when this is happening. Precisely. So it, it just deactivated um, those areas. Wow. So that's really interesting. So yeah. what do you feel like this is saying about acting? Like when it's when we're pr- portraying someone else, it's deactivating parts of our brain that are kind of like higher order thinking. Yeah. So they concluded that the study suggested that um, acting as like a what they called a neurocognitive phenomenon. So acting from a neurological perspective mm. is the suppression of self-processing. Um, so it's when like your own voice, your face, your personality is inhibited when you're portraying another person like you only have one voice one face and one body um and so the more that you portray another person the less resources that you have to 
devote essentially to portraying yourself or to being yourself, which is really intense um, as a concept. And then one thing that, so bringing it back to that British accent that we loved so much, (laughs) the condition of the British accent, it led to the same deactivations in the brain as did the first person, the fictional first person condition. So when somebody was speaking about themselves, first person perspective with a British accent adopted, the same parts of their brain were deactivated as when they were playing the character of Romeo or Juliet. So it's almost like when you're taking a conscious effort to shift the way that you're portraying yourself, you're deactivating yourself, your parts of the brain in the same way as if you're portraying someone else. Yeah, so there is another method in acting that some people call it like the outside in approach, but it's basically like you take on, you don't necessarily work from like an emotional place of the character, but you just do the things that it says that the character does. You um, take like basically like a physical persona of what you think that that person is. Um, So like if somebody is incredibly confident, you like have like a really open broad chest and you walk with authority. Um, So it's taking on a lot of those physical qualities. And then um, that will eventually lead you to fully embodying a character, which is essentially what the British accent does. It's you're taking on an outside quality of a character and putting it onto yourself. And so um, the condition that the British accent led to the same deactivations as the fictional first person um, condition that lends its support to the idea that the outside in approach can give you the same neurological results as the inside out approach, which is really, really cool. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting because it almost reminds me of um, different, you know, tactics that people use when we're talking about coping skills or people are working through really difficult struggles in therapy um kind of the inside out would be psychoanalysis and you know exploring your past and understanding yourself and your coping mechanisms and it can be a really painful but wholesome way to heal where outside in Mm -hmm. could be more behavior change um and directing yourself to make yourself smile um and there has been studies that show like actually smiling can make you happier even though it's weird and it's not genuine there's certain behavior changes that you that you do can work the other way as well the outside yeah, there's, um, there's an outside rem- in to psychology as well yeah absolutely it reminded me of um i think there's a ted talk about it but like the power position for women so like before going into an interview you like stand with your feet like spread apart and you like put your 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 fists on your hips and like you just you take like that superman position and apparently it can influence how much confidence you go into a space with um that's what it that's what the outside in approach reminds me of and as somebody that like as an actor I am an outside in person. I do not like the Stanislavski method. I, I, it is so hard for me to approach things from the inside out. It makes me feel a little bit crazy. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, Cause I think as a person, 
I am very much mm-hmm. so inside out. Like, I am just like, what are the inner yeah. workings of your mind? Tell me your history. What's your story? I want to get in there. I want to be there with you and feel that with you. It's very taxing. And I probably sometimes have to adopt yeah. as just as this week I had my, you know, anxiety exercise that just had to happen. Um, I think sometimes mm-hmm. there needs to be an outside in approach to help cope with too much inside out. Yeah. So I actually think in my daily life, I live like from so much from the inside. But when I go into a room to perform, Mm -hmm. it's so helpful for me to um, not investigate the character from a psychological perspective all the way and to just do the things that the script says the character is doing. Like feel the like orderly try and just like arc a script in a way that like I understand where the character is in space and in relationship to the other person but not necessarily what the character is feeling and what their history is with this present moment um because it really is exhausting to me to think about those things um so the outside in has always been my approach and it's it was in reading this I was like it's so exciting to know that like because I know that, you know, I, I've worked with actors that use the inside out approach. And these are very like loose and simplified terms, but the inside out approach. And I work with them perfectly fine. Um, and we connect. We have like just deep connections and do excellent work together. Um, but our approaches are different. And this study kind of suggests that like that makes sense because neurologically the same things are happening. Like we're still fully embodying the other character it's just coming from a different impetus right so you're basically saying that both both side both ways of acting work is one mm-hmm. easier than the other then is one better or safer than the other oh I don't know that I think that's going to take a lot more studying I know that there's a lot of like people that do like method acting or Um, which method acting is a little bit different than Stanislavski approach, but it is, um, it, I know that like it's driven a lot of people. It's an inside out approach. You know, I was going to say it's an inside out approach, but I don't particularly know because method acting is like doing the thing that like the character does all the time. So like, if your character is an alcoholic, like you would experience just drinking nonstop to understand the character, which to me, that kind of sounds like an outside in approach. Um, (laughs) Oh yeah. That's really interesting. I don't know if it's, yeah, I don't know if it's different for other people, but I know that my personal experience with the, the, the traditional inside out approach that they were talking about here, the Stanislavski method, it, 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 it was too heady for me and I couldn't, it stopped me from executing well. Mm-hmm. Um, elements of it are helpful, but I think at, at the in the end, um, it's not the approach for me. And I know other actors that like do it and are fine and like healthy and they seem okay. I know that some people that approach things from a Stanislavski perspective have a harder time stepping out of the character after the show has ended so like after they've executed a performance they're left with the heaviness of of the the character's experience wow that 
I, as and... a as a clinician, I relate to that. Um, I wonder if there's a different way to yeah. Because I'm I'm trying to think like almost in parallel to to work in therapy and and when you're with a client, um, are you as a clinician taking an inside out or an outside in approach when you're in a session with someone? And I think at mm. least my method tends to be very inside out. I'm, like I said, I'm kind of there with them. And I wonder if that can be more overwhelming because as you're saying, like sometimes they're left with that. I wonder, does that tendency to do that, to feel with and be with people um, and even just empathize, whether you're a clinician or you're someone in the world, just hearing someone's difficult story, um, how you're processing that narrative is if you're, if you're doing that with them, is it more difficult? And are you kind of like stunting our own ability to express ourselves as it's reducing those? Um, does does empathy and kind of taking this inside out approach would it stunt our mm-hmm. um, our own expression? That is a really interesting question, and it's not necessarily a question that the study has an answer for. But it is. No, <laughs> I think I'm a bit. A bit too macro here. But I think that um, it it does make me wonder so much about... I don't necessarily know that you have the... Like, there is a limited allocation of, like, those self-resources in your brain. Like, your brain can only focus on so many things at once. And so if you're constantly focusing on other people and trying to... um, and trying to feel with other people, I can only imagine that it would be difficult to then, you know, allocate those resources to yourself at the end of the day. Like, you're probably exhausted. Like, you've done so much of work. Right. What's the ongoing toll for people whose careers require this level of empathy? Um, yeah. Empathy. Yeah. Whew, that's a... <laughs> That's a real big question. And is there a way to do the work without being empathetic? It seems like for acting, we're saying there is. Um, But for other things in our relationships, is there a way? Yeah. And I don't even know that, like, it's interesting. I I still think that there requires a great deal of empathy when the outside-in approach, but it kind of hits you when you're not expecting Mm. it. Like, when you are physically doing all of these things, suddenly you're feeling all of this stuff. Um, As opposed to, like, feeling all of this stuff and then doing all of the things. Yeah. Um, So it does require a large bit of empathy, but personally for me, and maybe I've just been able to manage it in such a way that I can step out pretty quickly... But I, I don't know. I've seen it's just funny because so many actors like th- that's why a lot of actors, you know, are night owls and go to a bar after a show to have a drink because they need time to decompress from what they just experienced. Even if they are experiencing the same thing every night, it's so fresh and so like intense that stepping out and like having a decompression session afterwards is necessary. Which is funny because I think I would think that like you are definitely executing a huge level of empathy with your clients and you're holding so much. And like I think about my mom who is a patient advocate in the hospital and like she is also like hearing all of these stories and her job is to empathize and help the person feel trust in the hospital. And um, I know that she comes home with just like 
completely wiped <laughs> from the day. And it does speak to like how it, developing a method of coming out of that, a decompression right. method is it, it, it makes it important. It makes me wonder because, you know, we there's so much research on people in the field experiencing, you know, burnout and secondary trauma, people who are, you know, working directly with clients who've experienced mm. traumatic things. But I wonder, can actors experience secondary trauma through embodying these narratives? Oh, my God. <gasps> oh, wow. I, and that just made me think of all of the actors that um, like, like have been working for just like their entire lives and how many different experiences they've lived and associated yeah. with. Um, whew, that's intense. I'm curious. I, I hope they, this, I hope that this continues to be studied and um, that we can find more work that's already been done on it because it's very very yeah, interesting. there's definitely so much here to explore and it's such a fascinating topic so I, I appreciate you for for bringing this to the table yeah. it's so interesting Paula oh yeah I'm glad you liked it so let's move on to our next segment today we're going to do is that an ism so this is the part of the show where one of us asks the question is that an ism and for those of you who are unfamiliar with isms we'll give you some examples Sexism. Racism. Liberalism. Favoritism. Ignorantism. Ignorantism. Like the doctrine that ignorance is a favorable thing. <laughs> oh, um, okay. Well, Taylor, what is the ism that you want to talk about? Uh, so the ism I want to talk about today um, is ageism. So this is, a, this is a moment of, I guess, introspection for me um, where I think that think that I was I was am being ageist hit us with a so, set up set up the scene what do we got so the scene is me a young 26 year old navigating the world mm -hmm. in search of a long-term therapist mm -hmm. in which she really connects with mm -hmm. um and so I have been kind of meeting with different therapists and trying to find one I really have a good connection with mm -hmm. um for my own long-term therapy and I had set up this appointment with this therapist and I had to repeat myself uh, in setting up the appointment so, so many times and like clarify letters and she just, she sounded, I'm just going to be out, she sounded so old. Like, <laughs> I, like she just, she like couldn't hear me and I was, I was frustrated on the phone and I was like, there's no way this is going to work. Like, I just feel that I'm going to be repeating myself in the session and I talk a lot and I talk fast and I have a lot of thoughts. So you got to keep up. And so my right. thought was, there's no way, like I'm going to, you know, have a good connection with her, but I'm going to give it a try anyway. Mm -hmm. And so I, I did meet with this therapist and she was wonderful. Mm -hmm. Um, she was wonderful, and she, she did have um, a lot of experience, and she was older, and she did tell me sometimes I'd have to be patient because she does have hearing aids, but she was, uh, we had a great connection. Yeah. Wow. So what's the question? So the question is, um, well, there's a, there's a second part that I haven't admitted yet um, th that's kind of leading into is that an ism? I do quite like her, um, but I am still considering continuing looking mm -hmm. and part of me worries 
she she's quite old and I do worry that she may pass away and mm. then I would lose my therapist and oh. that's that the idea of that is scary to yeah. me and I think logical because but it's also it seems if we have a great connection it seems like it would be I don't know maybe a missed opportunity to pass up that re- that therapeutic relationship so I guess I guess, I guess I'm wondering is that an ism because I'm worried that she may pass away and maybe have difficulty hearing me sometimes and that might impact therapy so the question is is that an age is that ageism I definitely yeah. think that it's ageism <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. But do, too. like valid concerns, I can't even say that I haven't done this. Like I'm, um, I am also in search of a um, therapist, and because um, I haven't liked the ones that I've had in the past, um, and I, I was using an online like site where you can like input what you're looking for, and then they'll like populate people in your area. And one of the mm-hmm. questions was like. They asked about what age you prefer your therapist to be in, and they gave you, like, age groups, like 20s to 30s, 30s to 40s, 40s to 50s, that kind of thing. You can check off all that apply. And I stopped myself at 60 plus, and I was like, do I – like, I stopped myself – actually, I stopped myself at 40s to 60s. Let's be honest. I stopped myself there – or 50s to 60s because I was like, there's Mm. no way. But that is – and then I was like, hold up. Esther Perel is getting up there. And she is a fantastic therapist that people love. So I, I that was the thing that made me second guess. But it's definitely, it is ageism. But it, it you know what, we can't say it's ageism, but we can't. It's just ageism. <laughs> I think it is ageism. I think it's, it's hard because I, and I also get concerned. Uh, there's been so much raf- rapid shift in you know, technology. And I also think, um, just in like conceptualization of like relationships and sexuality and just modern times have evolved. And I, so I, I worry that there could be like foundational beliefs that would lead to not being, you know, accepted if you're more free thinking and I think that that is 100% rooted in ageism. It's the idea yep. that like someone um, won't be able to relate to me because of because of their age, or they yep. wouldn't maybe understand my thoughts or experiences, and without even giving them a chance. Yeah, it's really awful. So yeah, um, <laughs> so yeah, I think I think uh, ultimately that w- that is ageism. Um, I'm not sure how I am going to you know respond to that within my own personal decisions but I definitely think I don't want to miss an opportunity because I'm maybe conditioned or internally uh the implicit bias yeah the implicit (laughs) implicit ageist bias yeah well we'll see how it goes thank you so much for joining us thanks guys have a great week with what (laughs) wait hold on who died have a great week with (laughs) have a Have a great week. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Study Buddies was created by Paula Sanchez Abreu and Taylor Collins. Our graphic design was done by Monica Ray Summers Gonzalez, and our intro song was composed by singer songwriter Caught In Between. You can follow Study Buddies on Instagram at studybuddies.com and email the show at studybuddiespodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>